I am Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside Horror Show. We are in Oregon this week. We are. I have a ton of fun facts about Oregon. Oh, nice. I like fun facts. I think you'll like a lot of these. I may have tailored them to you, perhaps. I love things that are tailored for me. Some bespoke fun facts. I was just about to say bespoke. (laughs) All right. The first one it is pronounced Oregon, not Oregon. And I can say that with confidence because while no one knows exactly where the name Oregon comes from, it can be possibly derived from two words the French word for hurricane, which is Oregon. Or the Spanish word, or Jean, which means big ears. Weird. Okay. So not Oregon. It's always going to be Oregon. The only time I've ever heard it pronounced Oregon was back when the Oregon Trail game was out, and people mm-hmm. would say Oregon Trail. So Ugh, Painful. Painful. Now, Eden, do you know the nickname for Oregon? Nope. It's the Beaver State. Oh, the Beaver State. <laughs> Love some good beaver. I could not resist buying my wife a shirt when I was in Portland this summer that just says the Beaver State. Very nice. So, speaking of beavers, did you know that a golden beaver is featured on Oregon's state flag? I did know that because I've seen the state flag before, but that is really all I know of Oregon other than where it is geographically. (laughs) Well, did you know that that flag has two different sides? No, it's reversible. Yes. Oregon is the only state with a flag that's reversible. Cool. Uh, On one side, it has that big gold beaver. On the other side, it has the state seal featured in blue and gold. Now I wish I was from Oregon because I just want to get mad at someone and tell them they can kiss my big gold beaver. (laughs) I mean, I don't think you need to be from Oregon to scream that at people. Nice. I'll take that as, you know, the go ahead. And that is what I will do from now on. Fantastic. Now, I know you like to know fun things like the biggest and deepest things. So I have some of those facts for you. That sounded way dirtier than you intended, but let's go. (laughs) Oregon's Crater Lake is the deepest lake in the U.S. and the ninth deepest on Earth. Huh. I've heard of Crater Lake. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was the result of a collapsed volcano, hence the crater, and it's six miles long and five miles wide. Hmm. It's a big crater. Yeah, a big, big crater. The state also hits an other nautical depth in Hell's Canyon, which sits on the border with Idaho. It's the deepest river gorge in America. The gorge's depth is just about 8,000 feet when measured from the peak of the He Devil Mountain and the Pit of the Ravine. The what now mountain? The He Devil Mountain. That's what I thought you said. 
That's really, really weird. And now, like, I just think of She-Devil and I think of Roseanne and, yeah. One of Meryl Streep's finest roles. Oh, yes. (laughs) Let's see. What else is fun about Oregon? All right. This is kind of great. I know you're a man with a budget. Absolutely. Oregon is one of only five states with no sales tax. Oh, nice. I like it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The other states are Delaware, New Hampshire, Montana, and Alaska. Okay, I knew Delaware. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Delaware is great. That's why they have such good outlets. Yes. While Oregon does have income tax, you can enjoy tax-free shopping in the state, with one exception. Recreational cannabis. The state still taxes cannabis at roughly 17%. Makes sense because I I just knew like wherever it becomes legal is going to have it taxed the shit out of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Oregon was one of the first states to make it legal. It actually decriminalized it way back in 1973. What? Really? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. Yep. So speaking of things that might get you a little inebriated, Portland, Oregon has more breweries than any other city in the world. I believe it. There's lots of hipsters there. I know, I know. There's over 60 breweries within the city limits. And after you have a couple beers and you're bored, you can visit one of the many strip clubs in Portland because it has the most strip clubs per capita than any other city in the U.S. Really? I I didn't know the strip (laughs) club thing. I was not thinking that, but... Yeah, yeah. I was surprised about that one, too. You've actually been to Portland before, right? Only for a hot minute. Okay. Ooh, this is a good one. Oregon is home to the largest cheese factory in the world. Wow. Mm-hmm. I didn't know this. Not Wisconsin. Okay. You would think Wisconsin. I didn't know this, but the Tillamook Cheese Factory is actually the largest in the world. And it's become this really popular tourist attraction. I could see why. Yeah, it's cool. You can go and see how cheese is made, learn all about the cheese making process. And it's a self-guided tour, so there's no like rush to book a time and like get in there with their tour group. Awesome. I mean, I made cheese before, but that was by accident from leaving expired milk too long. (laughs) Cutting edge, cutting edge gastronomy there. (laughs) Let's see. Uh, One thing that I find a little annoying about Oregon is that much like New Jersey, It has no self-service gas stations. I knew that. I didn't know that until I pulled up to get gas and I got yelled at to get the hell back in my car. I forgot about it once in Jersey and I got yelled at. (laughs) Yeah, apparently Oregon and New Jersey are the only two states that have that. Yep. Oregon's also the only state with a official state nut. The state nut of Oregon is the hazelnut, a.k.a. the filbert. And that's because Oregon grows over 99% of the entire U.S. commercial crop. Interesting. Okay, yeah. Is hazelnut one of the true nuts or no? It is not, right? I think it's one of the true nuts. Because it's so weird. Most things that we think are nuts are not nuts at all. Right? They're like legumes, right? Yep. Yeah. I think I think it's actually a nut because it grows on a tree. I don't remember what makes a nut a nut. Hmm. Roasters, if you know what makes a nut a nut, let us know. If you are nutty yourselves, please contact us. <laughs> so this fun fact, I'm sure 
you'll enjoy because it'll remind us of our favorite childhood game where we tried to ford that damn river but always died. <laughs> the Oregon Trail. It stretches 2,200 miles, making it the longest land route in the western expansion of the U.S. Very nice. Okay. Mm-hmm. And also a great place to die of dysentery. <laughs> You're not wrong. All right. Now, my final fun fact is something that I did not know about. When I think about World War II, I always think about, you know, Pearl Harbor and the war in Europe and like in like the South Pacific. But did you know that Oregon was attacked by Japan in World War II? What? No. Right? So starting in 1944, the Japanese military started launching these unmanned balloon bombs towards the west coast of the U.S., in the vague hope that they might explode someplace helpful for them. So they released like 350 bombs that actually made it to the U.S. The farthest east that it got was Iowa. But overall, the U.S. military managed to intercede and intercept most of these bombs and take care of them. However, they were not able to intercept one of these balloon bombs that touched down in Gerhardt Mountain, Oregon where six people, five of them children, were at a picnic and one of the balloon bombs triggered. Oh. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, I never knew that. Why didn't we not learn that in school? I don't know. We should have, though. That's a great fun fact. Yeah. It's also the their deaths are believed to be the only combat casualties in the continental United States during World War II. Wow. So, mind blown. Yeah, really? But Yeah. Those are my fun facts for Oregon. Well, thank you so much for that, Nicole. Those were awesome. Thank you. And I apologize if my throat is really scratchy sounding, because guess what? It is. But I will make it through this, you guys. I will make it through this. So I guess I have a story for everybody. So I don't really have an intro this week for my story, seeing as how it is in Antelope, Oregon, a town which is less than a square mile and has a population of 37 people as of 2020. Did you say 37? 37. Okay. (laughs) Yep. Hence the no intro thing. Um, As far as things to do in this town goes, is you can visit the post office. That's (laughs) it. That's what this town has. They have nothing else, but my story takes place in a different time, one full of magic, wonder, and big hair, the 1980s. Ow! (laughs) The town had a lot more people back then, somewhere around 40 residents in total. Well, don't get wild now. Three whole more people. (laughs) Um, This is the story of the Rajneeshis, a cult to some, a religion to others, and many other things to many other people. But I want to start by talking about the man who started the group. Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh was born Chandra Mohan Jain, December 11th, 1931, but went by many names, including Osho, which is actually Japanese in origin, even though he's Indian. Uh, Bhagwan is a title like guru or spiritual leader, and Osho in Japanese means something akin to master or teacher, so it's pretty much the same thing. In the 1960s in India, Bhagwan started this radical new way of thought. 
He basically rejected your typical Hindu beliefs about detachment and giving up who you are in the mortal world. He said you don't have to do any of that. And his biggest thing he's known for is his ideas on sex, since he said sexuality should not be repressed, but be celebrated and enjoyed. I can support that. Yeah, exactly. And people actually called him the sex guru because of this. Uh, Weird, because that was my nickname in college. (laughs) Not trying to brag, but you know. (laughs) Another big belief was that you did not have to give up material possessions. And he loved this part because he had at least 20 Rolls Royces that he would ride around in. Mm, Fun. Yeah. So, I mean, like the sex thing. I'm totally cool with like that, you know, I'm like, yeah, sure. I mean, sex is meant to be enjoyed. Otherwise it wouldn't be, you know, a thing. It wouldn't feel good (laughs) if it wasn't meant to be enjoyed. Mm -hmm. But then I don't know, 20 Rolls Royces and your spiritual leader. That part is a little bit weird for me. Plus, why do you need more than one Rolls Royce? I mean, you can only be in one at one time. Exactly. It's not like you're like doing a split with one foot in one, one foot in the other, and then like a hand on another one. It's like a weird game of Twister, but with Rolls Royces. Yeah, I mean, no. challenge accepted? <laughs> I'm sure he'd take you up on that. <laughs> he gained a lot of followers over the years, and people would come from all over the world to see him in his ashram in India. The country of India as a whole really didn't like him much, though, and saw him as a threat to their beliefs and way of life since so much of what he was teaching went directly against what traditional Hinduism stood for. Possibly for this reason, or maybe for a few others I will discuss much later on, he up and leaves India without telling any of his followers and goes to the United States, Oregon to be exact, to a little sleepy town called Antelope. Before this, he had never left the ashram, mind you, so it was like real big when he left. Oh, wow. And yeah, the fact that he didn't tell any of the people there, super weird. He just went off in his roles one day and wound up in Antelope. Yeah, it sounds a little sketchy. Yeah. So once in Antelope, he buys this ranch right outside the town, which is this massive property. It's 80,000 acres of land, which is over 100 square miles. Once he buys this land, more and more of his followers start to show up, and they really develop this land quite well. They till the fields and made a nice big farming area where they would grow vegetables They built a bunch of A-frame houses for the new residents of the compound. They even built their own electricity and plumbing systems. I think that's pretty ingenious. Like, I mean, not a lot of people can, you know, build their own, like, you know, electricity poles and plumbing systems and all that, you know, because these were just normal people. Yeah, it takes a lot of cooperation. Yeah. This was not all, though, because this place was more than just a commune or compound. It was practically its own city with a shopping center, pizza parlor, bank, and an airport. What? Yeah, yeah. They made their own fucking city. They called their compound Rajneeshpuram, and the Bhagwan's followers were called Rajneeshis. Now, besides Bhagwan, there is another person I will be talking a lot about, which is a woman named Ma Anad. Sheila. Sheila is the Bhagwan's personal secretary and second in command, basically. He had a different secretary at first, but Sheila pretty much got her fired and told him, hey, I can do a much better job. 
<laughs> Typical Sheila. Yep. I mean, I, I wish that we didn't already have an episode called Seriously Sheila because this is another one. Although hers <laughs> is spelled S-H-E-E-L-A. But yeah, so she's just like, I can do a much better job. And what a job she did. But we will get to all of that because she's a crazy bitch. Not even going to make a secret about it. She's a crazy bitch. You're like, I'm not even going to, I'm going to spoil this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I had already mentioned the people in India didn't like this guy. But now with all these changes being made, the locals in Antelope really didn't like him either or his followers. They thought they were these scary people all wearing the same color and that them being there would ruin their small town way of life. If you're wondering about the color thing, it changed a few times. In India, it was all orange. Then it became all red. And after a while, it was red or purple. And I also saw some pink in there, too. Hmm. They especially didn't like when they printed an ad in the paper for the I guess it would be a commune talking about not repressing human sexuality. This was a small conservative Christian town and being raised Catholic, we both know how they feel about sex. Mm-hmm. Not talked about. You only do it to make kids. It's not about Exactly. Fun. Which is why Catholics have so many children. <laughs> they also had some strange rituals, which turned some people off. Uh, where Hinduism and Buddhism both have, you know, quiet meditation. Bhagwan said pretty much, you know, fuck that. And his version was more extreme. It had three main phases, as far as I know. The first was this heavy breathing, which is in direct contrast to the peaceful circular breathing most people use when meditating. The next was thrashing around and screaming, and then finally lying still and being silent. All in all, it doesn't seem that crazy, as I'm sure it can be very therapeutic. I mean, who doesn't want to scream at the top of their lungs sometimes? I mean, that kind of sounds like how I fall asleep every night, minus the screaming. <laughs> oh, I, I was just going to be like, your neighbors must love you. Uh, so this next tidbit I have for you is just nutty, in my opinion. One member of the group was the daughter of Congressman Leo Ryan. What? Yes, as in the guy who was murdered in Jonestown by one of Jim Jones's followers. Whoa. Yes. So there was even like this clip that I saw of her being interviewed. Where like, what would your dad say if he was here today about you joining these people? And she was like, I think he'd see that it's way different than Jonestown and everyone's just all about love and peace here. So... Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's a that's a crazy coincidence. Yeah, yeah. The media hated these people, and there was one clip I saw of this guy telling you when dealing with them to stand strong in your Christian beliefs and do it with Christian love, but his face was in this snarl that looked like <laughs> pure hatred. So it's pretty much like this weird threatening, like it looked like a dog about to bark. I not bark. Like he might a dog well, about to bite. Whatever I meant to say. <laughs> like he might as well be like cracking his knuckles talking about Christian love. Exactly. <laughs> oh, yes. If you could have seen that man's face, he looked pure evil himself. There was an expose film made about the cult where a hidden camera was brought into a meditation space. And the footage is super weird. And I swear I've never seen so many people naked in my life. Just <laughs> 
naked bodies flailing. Some of it looked like a violent orgy, but most of it was people screaming and crying and hitting pillows or the ground and then suddenly sitting quietly, followed by lots of naked dancing. Well, okay then. Yeah. It looked quite scary to me, but, you know, that's just me. It might have been completely fine. I wasn't there. So who knows? The hate in this town, or I should say the hate for this town, was so extreme that they got this group together called A Thousand Friends of Oregon. And their job was to fight what they called improper land use. They even had help from someone who owned the property out there by the name of Bill Bowerman, who was the creator of Nike. So basically, they went after the Rosnishis, um, saying, no, we did not give you the go-ahead to build your own fucking city. We thought you were just going to farm, but now you're up there doing God knows what and wearing too much red. They also said the Rajneeshis were loud and they could hear them having sex day and night. That, okay, that's a little bit of a stretch. You can hear the yeah. sex, but like you're the screaming and meditation, you're like, ah, it's fine. Exactly. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I don't know why I love doing that weird valley girl voice. It's fine. Anyway, they ended up basically suing the commune to get rid of them and tear down their buildings, which is kind of nuts since it's their own land. And they yeah. were, you know, they were just building on their own land. But the Rajneeshis found a way around this and planned to buy the whole town of Antelope. The businesses and houses were pretty cheap in the small town. So they bought up whatever they could. And back then there were actual businesses in Antelope, in downtown Antelope. There's there's only 40 people, though, right? So Exactly, 40 people. And then once those other three left, I guess, is when all the businesses went away, except the post office. I don't know. That <laughs> guy's still there. <laughs> um, by this point in my research, I was actually siding more with the cult, which is weird, especially since this one dude in town made a mala out of bullets, which is super disrespectful. Whoa. Malas <laughs> are pretty sacred in Hinduism, and everyone in the commune wore one. They're essentially like prayer beads or like a rosary that Catholics mm -hmm. have. Uh, there are 108 beads which are used to keep track of your mantras since the number 108 is a sacred number. There is one extra bead after this where you sit in silence and think about your teachers in life called the guru bead. And it's a bitch to thread when you're making one, I will tell you that, because it is a tea-drilled bead and you can't see what you're doing, and it's tough as hell to get that cord through there. But I digress. Not sure if it was the same guy as the bullet mala dude, but another townsperson was quoted on camera as saying, take your gun, go down there, and blow them out. Waste them out. Whoa! <laughs> yep. <laughs> These people are so mad. I don't understand I why they're so mad. Another person said they were begging to be shot. Um, obviously the Rajneeshis did not take kindly to any of this, and people then said by way of retaliating, they would shine spotlights in their houses and take pictures and videos of the townspeople. <laughs> and then everyone's like, I feel so threatened, you know, but they, they, whatever. They're taking my photo. They're taking my photo. I see light for the first time. It's awful. That's what I look like in bright lighting. No, thank you. Um... <laughs> 
But since this cult was buying everything in the town, the town itself fought back by trying to disincorporate their town. And someone had a bumper sticker that said better dead than red, referencing the color they wore. Wow. That's hilarious. Yeah. Like, we're I just know. Co-op this anti-communism slogan. <laughs> wow. The thing with the strategy that people didn't count on was that it comes down to a vote to disincorporate. And the Rajneeshis were now members of the community and registered voters. So the vote to disincorporate failed to succeed. Oh, snap. Yep. Here's where things start to get a bit nuts. When buying up the properties, they bought the hotel downtown. And after all this with tensions running high and the failed, you know, vote there, late one night after the vote failed, the hotel gets bombed with at least two separate bombs. Hmm. So obviously it's someone in that town. Yeah. I mean, hey, you only have 40 people to choose from. Shouldn't be that hard. But they don't know who did it to this day, as far as I know. It's just nuts because when trying to save your town, now you're destroying the town. Yeah, it kind of seems the opposite of how you would want to spend your energy. Exactly. So obviously this made things a lot worse because you have this cult who wasn't hurting anyone at this point. And now you've pissed them off trying to get them to leave. So now this group went out and bought some guns to protect themselves with. So now you've got this compound filled with guns, which is always scary, even if it Mm -hmm. is initially to defend themselves. Mob mentality is a very real thing. And they outnumber the townspeople by a lot. They started training every member how to use these guns and developed what they had called the Peace Force, where their people would patrol the town with guns And it was legal because they had trained with the police force to become cops. What? Yep. (laughs) Holy shit. Yep. Nuts. They even ended up arresting a man for holding up a sign that said, better dead than red. Yeah, that dude needed to pick his battles. Exactly. Is this the hill you really want to die on, man? Come on. Mm -mm. So... Sheila, the wonderful lady that I talked about earlier, um, said in an interview once when being asked about the conflict between the commune and the town, and I cannot for the life of me remember if these were her words or if she was quoting Begwan. But she said, I'm not Jesus. I'm not Gandhi. When Jesus says, turn the other cheek, you take both of their cheeks. Oh, my. Yes. You need to watch some interviews with her because she's always nuts. So after this, since like I said before about being outnumbered and, you know, registered voters, they changed the town name from Antelope to Rajneesh and took over city council. I mean, that's kind of like the next step, right? Like that, we all saw that coming, right? Exactly. They did, however, vote two non-Rajneeshis into the council seats, but one left right after this. Like, I guess he just didn't want to deal with the Rajneeshis that closely, so he just left. (laughs) He's like, yeah, no, no thanks, thanks. One person described Sheila, by the way, as the closest, quote, the closest thing to Hitler we can get, end quote. Wow, Sheila! When dealing with her, yep, the closest thing to Hitler we can get. Yikes. 
Maybe this was just for the Rajneeshis, maybe it was to piss off antelope some more, I don't know. But the commune hosts this big festival for all its followers, including people that don't live at the commune. And thousands upon thousands of people show up from all over to go to what they called World Festival 1983. Uh, The people still would not rest in Antelope because now they just had this big festival and they're pissing them off even more with all this noise and all these buses of people coming in in droves. Uh, So now, you know, Antelope, or I guess Rajneesh, um, the people were really pissed off and they took their concerns to the attorney general who said that their town, quote, violates the constitutional separation of church and state, end quote. Mm, okay, I guess I can see an argument for that. Yeah, there's a lot going on here uh, that were red flags, like the fact that they had their own police force within the religion and the public school in the town was filled with religious imagery. Now, I'm all for separation of church and state and completely agree with it, but I'm wondering how much of this is about that and how much is about the fact that it's not a Christian religion. I mean, I think there's definitely a large portion of that comes from, you know, the non-Christian fear, for sure. Exactly. So back to Sheila. She is just like the nuttiest person ever. And I already touched upon this with you, but I understand wanting to protect, uh, you know, your beliefs and your community, but she goes into full on attack mode on every talk show that she's on letting F-bombs fly. And the weirdest thing about her, I think, is that she would have meetings in private with Baguan and then tell everyone else what they discussed. So how much of that (laughs) is the Baguan and how much of that? is Sheila. I'm going to say a, a lot of it is Sheila. Yeah, cuz I mean who's to say if what Sheila's saying he said, he actually said. Mm-hmm. And also she woke up, this is really weird. She woke up one of the other members from a deep sleep to have her wax her legs for her. <laughs> Middle of the night she's like get up, bring your wax and to wax her fucking legs. What? Sheila, seriously, what the fuck? Seems very power trippy. Oh yeah, definitely. Now, there was a new vote coming up for an elected official for the town, and they needed to get one of their own people into that seat since the town wanted to get rid of them in any way possible. So at Sheila's behest, to increase their numbers, they started recruiting homeless people and giving them bus tickets to Rajneeshpuram. Who knows if this was a calculated move or a goodwill movement, which was, you know, their PR spin on things at least. But yeah, just bus loads of homeless people just pouring on in. And the reason I say this is because these are now new residents who can vote in the upcoming 1984 elections for county seats. Mm. The only rules with voting in Oregon at that time anyway where you have to be 18, a U.S. citizen, and living in the state for at least 20 days. However, they were in for a very unpleasant surprise when they bust all of the people down to the courthouse and were told the right to register to vote had been suspended. What? Yeah. 
yeah, the state had made that decision to suspend the right to register to vote, which I didn't even know they could do, but I guess they can. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know that was a thing. Exactly. And this made the former homeless population really angry as they felt this was a direct violation of their rights. And one began going completely nuts and became violent and actually grabbed Sheila by the throat and shook her violently. One of the doctors there at Rajneeshpuram ended up sedating the man, getting him off the property and putting him on a park bench somewhere. No idea where he went after that. But yeah, and if I didn't mention that before, there are doctors in this little, you know, town that they created. It's at this point where I feel the so-called goodwill with the homeless shown through as a smokescreen because their solution once this happened was to sedate all the former homeless people. They ended up dosing them with Haldol in their beer without their knowledge. What the fuck? Yeah, yeah. One of the biggest side effects of Haldol is it makes you sleepy. They said since one made trouble that they all needed to be sedated. So thanks, Sheila, for that loveliness. After this, Sheila needed to find a new way to win the election since her plan failed, and she brought people in to discuss more plans. And what were her new plans? Well, you went this long without it happening, but I'm sure you knew it was coming. It begins with an M. What could it be, Nicole? Is it murder? That's right. Murder. Well, 28 days before the elections, people in Wasco County were suddenly getting very sick, throwing up and having general food poisoning symptoms. 750 people or so, actually turns out to be a salmonella outbreak. Hmm. So how could this have possibly happened on such a large scale? That's what officials at the CDC wanted to know, too. They asked people what or where they had eaten, but they just couldn't figure it out or find a common thread, really. They initially had blamed the food handlers at a few restaurants in the area. Well, the Rajneeshis were the only ones who weren't sick. Hmm. Weird. Yeah, that kind of set off a, you know, a red flag. Um, But how would Sheila have done this, though? Well, they had their own medical corporation in the compound, which is also how they were able to get the Haldol. Still, no one could prove anything, but the fact that Sheila's plan with importing all these homeless people into the town had now failed, and it meant that she was in hot water with Osho, and might lose her position, and she had to think of something else fast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There was also some competition now because the cult's influence was spreading to L.A., and there was a woman named Hasya, who was the former wife of Godfather producer Al Ruddy, and she was the head of the Hollywood group of the Rajneeshis. Baguan loved shiny things, and these people were able to give him diamond watches and other expensive things, so that gave her a bit of a leg up on Sheila, whose plan just recently failed. Mm-hmm. The Hollywood crowd also had access to Baguan without Sheila present, and Sheila did not like that very much. So Hasya and her husband at the time, John, 
began getting more responsibilities, which made Sheila very, very angry. Sheila said around this time that Baguan had started changing, and he started talking about a doomsday scenario, as it was called by another member. I saw him being interviewed in the docuseries that I watched. He said everything would fall apart, but his people would be safe, and they would make an underground dwelling where they could live. I guess we're finally getting into true cult territory now. Yeah. (laughs) So supposedly, according to Sheila, the Hollywood group got him hooked on drugs, specifically laughing gas and Valium, which he somehow had prescriptions for, I'm guessing, through the, you know, facility that's in the compound. Uh, She confronted him about it, but he told her to stay out of it. I don't know. I mean... When I go to drugs, my first, you know, thought isn't, hmm, laughing gas sounds great. Oh, yeah. Let's mix that with some Valium. No. <laughs> so, what? Like, why laughing gas? But, okay. Are you going to the dentist later? Um, <laughs> although, the everything falling apart thing, he was actually sort of right on since the townspeople were far from the only people trying to shut him down now as the police and the FBI were now getting involved. He was here on a visa, and in another way to get rid of this guy, they decided to try to have him deported, saying he was not fulfilling his duties as a religious leader because sometimes he would be in silence and not lead services. Mm -hmm. Yet again, for now at least, he won, and the INS could not deport him. Because, I mean, that is pretty stupid. It's like sometimes, you know, people take vows of silence in certain religions. So if that's part of his religion, then guess what? That's what's going to happen. So they decided instead to seek him on criminal charges instead and began digging for anything they could find on him. They were looking into him for immigration fraud as more of a facilitator of it, saying that he had been sending people who weren't real couples to get married and then return to the compound and be with whoever again, with Charles Turner, the U.S. attorney for Oregon, heading this investigation. Hmm. Meanwhile, Sheila was developing a list of enemies of the religion, with Charles Turner, the U.S. attorney for Oregon, being at the top of the list. Sheila said that they should take out their enemies and shoot them because, you know, logic, whatever. She just volunteered a woman by the name of Shanti B., who my autocorrect kept trying to change to Ashanti. No, she's not (laughs) hanging out with Ja Rule. This is Shanti B. It's a combination of Ashanti and uh, Cardi B. Anyway, so Shanti B., she, you know, Sheila volunteers her for the job and sends her off to meet another sannyasin in plain clothes and uh, brought her to an apartment and told her to change into normal clothes so they wouldn't be spotted. Someone came to them and talked about, you know, which guns they would use for the assassination. They walked through where Turner parked his car in this, like, um, what do you call them? Parking garage, I guess. Mm -hmm. And they waited for him, but he did not come. This is also when an investigative journalist comes in and he goes to India and he finds some crazy shit. Back in India, it turned out they had left because Indian authorities were after the group for immigration fraud, tax fraud, smuggling money, which I don't know what that means entirely, um, arson, which I wish I knew more about, etc. So lots of charges. 
Smuggling money, I just think of like somebody shoving dollar bills into like a suitcase. Their pants? Okay. <laughs> their pants. <laughs> no, in my head, it's a, their pants. And that's, that's all I see. It's someone being like, ooh, church collection money and just like taking it. <laughs> when digging into how they were doing in America, it turns out the commune was in debt to the tune of $4 million, which is crazy because all the people living in Rajneeshpuram had given him money, including the Hollywood people. But then again, Bhagwan did love his material things and had quite the collection of cars and watches. Meanwhile, Sheila brings in the homeless that she had brought in before and starts kicking a good deal of them out, saying that if she sees them as troublemakers, they are out, and she would pick people and send them packing. Some of these might be legit because a lot of the homeless population tend to have issues with mental health that goes undiagnosed and untreated, as I have seen firsthand from where I used to work, and the commune was just not set up to deal with that. But I also feel there was, you know, part of it being like, you're no longer useful, get out. One of the homeless people who got the boot was being interviewed and was asked what he would say to young people about the commune. And his response was, quote, don't go unless you want to be a queer. I saw him kissing and hugging and the lesbians, too. Well, then sounds delightful. Exactly. Don't go unless you want to be a queer. Nowadays, that would probably get more people to go. Anyway, they literally bust them out the same way that they brought them in. And the news at the time in the area suggested people locked their doors for safety. They're just like, everybody, hide your kids, hide your wife. (laughs) (laughs) The homeless population who was kicked out now planned to illegally register to vote just to vote against the Rajneeshis. (laughs) They're like, fuck these people. We're going to vote again. Exactly. When the vote came down, the Rajneeshis ended up losing. After this, things just start to be a total shit show, and a mysterious fire breaks out at the planning office, which was obviously arson. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Papers had been thrown everywhere, and accelerant was used. What's that smell? Is it is it burning with a side of Sheila? <laughs> it's Sheila's surprise. <laughs> Best recipe ever. Sheila number five. Sheila number five. (laughs) Well, next, some people involved with the vote received a box of chocolates and a note saying, quote, thank you for your support to preserve the Columbia River Gorge. Don't eat those chocolates. Exactly what my thought was, too. Well, someone who received those chocolates, uh, they see Bowen Blair, who is the director of the Columbia Gorge. And they thank him for these delicious chocolates that, you know, he had sent over. And he's like, what chocolates? Sure enough, they did find that the chocolates had pinpricks in the bottom and, you know, had some kind of poison in them. At least one person who received the chocolates and ate them almost died. Why is Sheila, like, pulling out, like, the greatest hits of 80s, like, mass hysteria? Like, we're scared of homeless people. Check that candy for them. (laughs) Marks of injection. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. She's freaking nuts. And it just gets worse. So this was, I mean, there was even this hotline, okay, that got created where you could call in with tips on anything related to the commune 
and they said that they had just had to like wade through like what information was real and what was fake but they did get lots of calls including people saying that they plan to bomb the courthouse and such which wouldn't surprise me with sheila because she's fucking nuts as we've already seen mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's so obvious watching sheila in interviews that she is a total taking time bomb and this got worse with hasia becoming more important than she was since she had failed her mission also, Hasia ended up marrying Osho's doctor, whom she also hated. Oh, and at this point of Sheila's utter breakdown, to protect Bhagwan, she also started wiretapping him. To protect him, of course, yes. To yes. protect him, yes. From these recordings, Sheila and company heard Bhagwan asking his doctor how to create a painless death. And he basically gave him this crazy lethal injection recipe involving morphine Something called quinone, which I don't know what that is, and something else to stop the heart. He ordered these from the doctor, and when they came, he told the doctor to bury them in a safe spot until they were needed. Baguan also told Sheila to build a crematorium. So this is where I'm thinking immediately when I hear this, Jim Jones. Yeah. Yeah, immediately. So Sheila thought Baguan was going to die by the hands of his doctor, on July 6, 1985, and she intended to stop it. She said that if they could just kill the doctor, they could save his life. Wow. Sheila didn't want to get her hands dirty, so she needed someone else to do it. And Shanti B, the one who Sheila had wanted to assassinate the other guy, volunteered for the job. Hey, Sheila, I got this. Don't worry. Exactly. I'm not always there when you call, but I'm always on time. Um, (laughs) So on Master's Day, which is uh, very much what it sounds like, it's a day where some Hindus give thanks to their spiritual teachers. Shanti sat behind the doctor at the celebration with a poison-filled syringe in her pocket. And at the end of the celebration, Shanti whispered something to the doctor before covertly injecting him with the contents of the syringe, and I believe it was in the butt. Um, He obviously felt it. Yeah. But she had tossed the syringe by that point, and she just pretended nothing happened. And after she started stum- after he started stumbling, she asked, oh, what's wrong? You know, quite a few times. Uh, and then he just walked away, or stumbled away, I guess I should say. After this, both Shanti and Sheila fled the commune, as did the rest of Sheila's most trusted gang members. Oh, I mean supporters. (laughs) And they headed to Germany. When Baguan found out Sheila had left, he was pissed. And for the first time in four years, he decided to address the people of his religion. What happened to the doctor, though? Did he die? The doctor did not die. So the doctor is fine. He just had a real rough night. He just had a real rough night. Exactly. Yeah. So he's okay. he's fine. They got to him in time to save him from the poison, and he is very much alive. When Baguan found out Sheila had left, he was pissed. And for the first time in four years, he decided to address the people of his religion and the press. And he begins telling them Sheila and her group were completely responsible for everything. He admits she bugged his house and tried to kill three people. Around this time now, with him out for blood, they both did a lot of interviews and public appearances with Baguan trying to defame her and Sheila being Sheila and laughing at the outrageously 
true claims that he was making about her. All of this rocked the members of Iguan's religion, and obviously with Sheila gone, Hasi replaced her, which should be no surprise. Mm -hmm. But I don't think she was doing a good job at being the face of the movement like Sheila had been. Call her what you will, but she's quite awful, but she's also good at her job. I say this because Baguan is going on television and saying he wants the police to look into the crime Sheila has been committing, and he lists them off from poisoning to assassination plots to bombing plots and that fire in the county office. Um, this causes the FBI to take notice and they investigate the compound. <laughs> He's like, no, no, Sheila. Sheila, exactly. not the compound. But, you know, you open the door, buddy. So here we go. Lynn Enyart, head of the GBI task force, uh, spent two months inside the compound doing a thorough investigation. And he said he found tons of people having sex all over the place, <laughs> which is about what I had expected, honestly. Um, he said other types of behavior that was condoned there you don't see in other parts of Oregon, but did not get specific on what he was talking about. Okay. Probably the gays, because, you know, don't go there unless you want to be a queer. It was definitely butt stuff. <laughs> Just a little butt stuff. Just the tip. Um, so by this time, one of their members had become mayor of the town, and he was trying to work with police and actually handed over Sheila's secret tapes that she had stashed in a hidden room. What I should actually say here, though, is that... It is a hidden room that led to more hidden rooms and then even more hidden rooms and then a hot tub for some reason. So literally in her compound, it was just like secret door. Where does this lead? Oh, secret passage. Where's this lead? Oh, another secret door with a secret passage. Oh, and another one. And then, ooh, a hot tub. But wait, there's more. Sheila was not just recording and wiretapping the guan, but what seemed like everyone else in the commune too. They found so many tapes, they said that it would have taken someone over two years straight without sleeping to listen to all of them. They found out all about the hits Sheila had called on the various enemies of the Rajneeshis and said one man's daughter found a dead animal's entrails and newspaper articles on their driveway, which matched with, you know, what they had found there at, um, you know, in the recordings. They also looked into the lab where all the drugs had, you know, been going through, which mm -hmm. was led by a woman named Ma Anad Puja, who would apparently poison people who were getting out of line in the cult. <gasps> yep. Oh. It's also possible as other members, you know, had made allegations saying that Sheila was poisoning them as well. That food poisoning incident. We knew it was Sheila, but we didn't know how. Well, apparently, she and her crew went around to various salad bars in town and brushed salmonella cultures from the lab onto the food. Never eat at the salad bar. Right? They wore long sleeves to hide what they were doing, and that wasn't even her first attempt. She also planned to poison the water supply, and this is real nuts. She's going to poison the water supply in the city, and they were going to do this in like the weirdest way that I have ever heard. 
they tried to put beavers into the water supply from the dam because beavers are apparently dirty and would contaminate the water. But they couldn't get them in there because there was like this fence around it. Um, so they took the beavers, killed them, blended them in a blender, what? and poured the beavers into the water supply. Those poor beavers! Right? That is not how you treat a beaver in the beaver state. I know. And then what the hell? Who who says, oh, they won't fit? I guess we got to blend them. <laughs> no, Sheila, what? that's who. That monster. What? Right? I know. It's silly me for asking. Oh, my God. Uh, so with him throwing Sheila under the bus and the police just you know wanted to get him too. They didn't really care so much about Sheila, even though she is clearly the mastermind. Um, they... You know, they weren't ready to let Baguan go either, though. Um, so Baguan did a lot of reformation after the departure of Sheila, um, saying that, you know, it's not a religion. He suddenly was just like, this is not a religion. No one was restricted to the colors anymore that they were made to wear for so long. They didn't even have to use their malas anymore. Oh, and he burned Sheila's robes and books uh, that she made of rites and prayers for the uh, Rasnishis. Mm-hmm. He burnt them all. Sheila was on the other hand, she says that she was not the one making these rules and that Bagwan was the one who actually made it a religion and not her. But he was kind of just like, no, this was Sheila's ways. We're just going to throw them out. So it's very he said, she said, who knows? The ranch was then raided after this by the FBI, uh, state and local police. And after this, Baguan was no longer being cooperative with authorities and advised his people not to be cooperative either. Well, while nearly everyone was still loyal to him, one member went to the FBI and got himself immunity. His name was Krishna Deva, or David Knapp. Mm-hmm. And at this time, he was the mayor of Rajneeshpuram. He admitted to the food poisoning uh, attack, among other things, and began working as an informant for the FBI. They ended up charging Baguan and some of his followers, apparently getting warrants for everyone, and charged them with conspiracy to defraud the U.S. and immigration fraud. They also finally decided to go after Sheila because, you know, they want to get her too. And in my opinion, that they just should have gotten her in the first place and took her down right away. The police were afraid to execute the warrants, however, because they were severely outnumbered and armed, thanks to Sheila. (laughs) They ended up calling in the National Guard as backup because they were so afraid. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And then also, all these things had been on the news, and the Rajneeshis had TV, so they knew what was going on. And one member said if they came in shooting, they were going to shoot right back. Well, before they could execute those warrants, however, a Learjet touched down inside the compound, picking up Baguan, and he left the compound. Bye. Now, there were two jets. I don't know who was all on the planes because they can't hold everyone in the compound, obviously. Right. But he must have taken some people with him. The FBI surmised that he was headed to Bermuda, and the reason for that being you can't extradite from Bermuda. They knew the planes would need to refuel, Uh, So they start mapping out where they would do that. And they found them in Charlotte, North Carolina at the Charlotte airport. 
No shots were apparently fired when arresting him, and they were able to arrest him you know, without any incident at all. He did bring a lot of his possessions with him when he fled. No Rolls Royce, uh, but tons of watches and jewelry. Oh, and this throne, which to me just kind of looks like a high-end lazy boy. But it was his, <laughs> it was throne, his favorite so chair. <laughs> exactly. I mean, hey, those things are comfy. It reclined. <laughs> At this time, they were also able to take down Sheila and her group in the Black Forest of Germany, uh, where they had been staying close to the Swiss border. They were arrested for the attempted murder of Beguan's physician. Things get nuts at this point because the media just goes crazy with the story and people of Charlotte also go nuts and they even sell t-shirts with a picture of Beguan behind bars that says, we bagged the Beguan. Wow. Yeah. Good to know that even when they win, they're still racist as shit. Exactly. It's like, you don't have any personal stake in this. You're not the people of Antelope. I can understand the people of Antelope doing that, but why are you doing that? (laughs) The jailers in the Charlotte jail said that he was a model prisoner during his time there with them, and he caused no problems. If found guilty of the charges, most of which relating to sham marriages and immigration fraud, he would face 175 years in prison and fines of up to $350,000. Meanwhile, Sheila and her two henchwomen were in a German prison before being sent back to the U.S. In court, Sheila is just smiling from ear to ear during preliminary hearings. People said that she answered their questions openly and honestly and without any remorse for anything that she had done. Mm -hmm. So Sheila is currently in Portland, and Beguan was supposed to go to Portland as well, but they just kept putting him in new jails and new jails in between this for three weeks and they were supposed to go directly to Portland. What started out as people saying Baguan was being treated well in jail quickly disintegrated into what they called unfair treatment as he was not brought where he was supposed to be on time and put in a cell with a man with contagious herpes. What? Yep. Sheila avoided trial by pleading guilty to mass poisonings, attempted murder, conspiracy, and wiretapping, to name a few. And she got four and a half years in prison uh, and then to pay a fine of $469,000 and then leave the country once all is said and done. Four and a half years is a little small for poisonings, attempted murder, conspiracy, and wiretapping. Yeah, that's interesting that it was, you'd think it would be at least like seven to ten years. Exactly. I mean, they cut her a really good deal because, I mean, there would have been a deal cut since she did plead guilty. Uh, Meanwhile, Shanti, the one carrying out the attempted murder, got 10 years in prison. I know she was holding the needle, but Sheila was the ringleader. Like, why is her jail time so light? I guess we will never know. For Baguan, he finally made his way to Portland after the jail world tour. And although his lawyer said the FBI had no evidence, he said that he wanted a deal as he could not sustain going through a trial for an elongated period of time. Apparently, his he wasn't doing so well health-wise. Um, he pled guilty and did not get any jail time and was just forced to leave the country. They're just like, fuck it. We just want you out, dude. Just just go. You got to go. You don't, you don't got to go home, but you can't stay here. Exactly. So he, yeah, he left the country that night with a few followers. Um, after this, there began a trickling out of the sannyasins remaining at the compound, and the ranch property would eventually be sold. 
Later, after about a year in prison, Sheila did an interview with the reporter, and she was asked if she felt any remorse about the people that got sick from what she had done with the food poisoning. And she said, people get sick all over the world on a daily basis. Why should I feel remorse? Wow. Uh, Because you poisoned them. Because it's your fault, Sheila. Yeah. What the hell? Seriously, Sheila. Um. So anyway, besides her being crazy, uh, Bhagwan went back to India and he passed away in 1990 in his bed with some people believing it was not natural causes at all and that it was the drug cocktail that he had been, you know, hiding at the compound or at least something similar. Hmm. But no one knows for sure. The conspiracy to commit murder case for the U.S. attorney was still open. No one was charged and not prosecuted yet. And Shanti was not allowed to go and leave the country, but she wanted to go to Australia, where she was from, to see her son, who was currently dying in the hospital. She went to the courts and pleaded for them to let her go see him, and they ended up sentencing her to time served. So she didn't serve any time for that one. And this is, of course, after she got out of that, like, what was it, five or ten years? I think it was ten years. Um, So as for the ranch, in closing, in a bizarre twist of fate, it's now run by Christians. Is that a bizarre twist of fate, Eden? Or they want it all along? Who knows? That could have been the plan. Uh, someone in the documentary series that I watched was like, yeah, it went from going to a place where everyone had sex to a place where no one had sex. <laughs> it's true. So what do you think, Nicole? Uh, that is a lot of twist of turns. Right? Who knew? how crazy small town life could be when you're trying just to run your sex cult in peace. Exactly. All I want to do is run off and start a sex cult. And now this has given me pause. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. The really funny thing about this story is back in college, I went to this one girl's birthday party and it was out in this place in the Poconos called Jonas, which I've never heard of since or before, but I don't even know how to get there anymore. But (laughs) I do know that it was somewhere in the Poconos. And it was somewhere off the Stroudsburg exit because I almost missed it and almost crashed my friend's brand new Chevy Malibu. But we get to that party and I'm talking more so to my friend's mom than I am to anyone else at the party. And she's doing like my tarot cards and she's like doing all this stuff. And then she's like, are you familiar with Osho? And then she like went into this big thing about the Rajneeshis. like not any of this weird shit but like their basic teachings and she's like you should really live by this you should really do this you should also do a macrobiotic diet and like all this stuff <laughs> yeah she was fun you're like i'm just here to party why are you trying to recruit me thanks exactly for the but like once i like saw this story when i was looking for something bizarre to do i was like no shit get like the fuck out because osho really I knew about him in college, and I never knew any of this. Surprise. Exactly. I would say you perhaps have dodged a bullet. Perhaps. Per-freaking-haps. Now, my sources for this week were Wikipedia, a docuseries on Netflix called Wild Wild Country, OshoNews.com, Biography.com, TheQuint.com, OregonLive.com, and a few others, but my sources got closed out before I could do that portion. So I did the best I could at restoring that for this week. Cool. 
Well, thanks for that interesting story about yet another wackadoo Sheila Eden. Wackadoo Sheila. <laughs> um, I guess we'll take a short break and then come back for a news story and then my story. Sounds good. And we are back. And instead of the news, I have sort of the news uh, because we had a Florida man request. So this is a Florida man for Marie. Here you go. Here is your Florida man. Florida man gets $37,500 after officer thought donut glaze was meth. (laughs) Oh, no. What did I just read? Oh, and it's in Orlando. Great. The beginning of a tale as old as time. <laughs> yeah. The old trick me with the glaze when it thought it was meth. Man, I mean, if I had a penny for every time that's happened to me, I'd be a very rich man. <laughs> I'd have zero pennies. Um, Okay, here we go. A Florida man who was arrested in 2015 after police mistook donut glaze in his car for meth has received a $37,500 settlement. Dan Rushing, just like they were rushing to put him away for that meth that was actually just glaze, um, received the settlement after suing the city of Orlando, according to the Orlando Sentinel. Rushing, 65, was arrested in December 2015 during a traffic stop where Corporal Shelby Riggs Hopkins saw flakes of glaze on his car's floorboard and thought they were pieces of crystal meth. He's like an old man. Right? Really? The meth? Not perhaps any kind of sugary treat? Exactly. I know I love sugary treats. I'm assuming he does too. Apparently I'm right. A series of roadside tests came back positive for the illegal substance. What? What? Rushing spent 10 hours in jail on a possession of methamphetamine with a firearm charge before posting a $2,500 bond the Sentinel reports. A different test later proved the substance was sugar from the Krispy Kreme donuts he'd eaten. Riggs Hopkins was given a written reprimand for making an improper arrest. I'm sorry, how did it come back as meth? Perhaps someone did not administer the field test accurately. That is just bizarre. And when you say did not administer it accurately, you mean freaking faked it? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking, too. And guess what? Because that was short and I'm feeling generous, I have a second Florida man for Marie. I just want to say real quick, thank God he didn't go with the powdered jelly that day. Oh, cocaine all the way. (laughs) (laughs) And then blood for the jelly. Who knows? Who did you kill Uh, while you were high (laughs) on your cocaine? I can tell this cocaine is from a stripper's ass. Um, (laughs) So here is your second Florida man. Florida man arrested for pleasuring himself with ice pack in front of first responders. Okay, take me on that journey. And you know what? It, it, It was better in my head because in my head it was ice pick. Oh. And I was just like, that sounds painful. How did you do this? Um, but ice pack, that makes a little bit more sense. Yet I still don't know how you did it. Um, 
So a Florida man has been arrested for pleasuring himself with an ice pack while first responders were on call to assist him with breathing issues. <laughs> what? That's the last thing I'm thinking about if I'm having breathing issues. On October 14th, 30-year-old Terry Majors of uh, Pinellas County, I guess, um, Florida, was arrested on and arrested and charged with exposure of sexual organs, a misdemeanor. He was released on October 15th on his own recognizance. According to an arrest report, Majors called 911 because he was experiencing shortness of breath. Once the EMT crew arrived, Majors removed his clothing and began masturbating with an ice pack in the presence of the first responders, according to police. First responders will like to prosecute, said Officer Hannah Duran, in the arrest report. Recently, Majors was released from jail after serving one-year sentence on felony drug charges for selling crack cocaine to an undercover cop. She how chill, how charming. Uh, he has also served time in state prison for burglary. In a similar incident on September 14th, a Florida man was tased for twerking in front of police <laughs> during an arrest and subsequently charged with a number of traffic offenses. Did we just accidentally get a triple Florida man? I think we did. <laughs> and it was worth it. It was so worth it. You guys, I, just remember, never twerk at a cop. Never twerk at a cop. Ugh. I I appreciate that the first responders are like, we're going to press charges. Because I would be pissed off if your job is to like respond to emergencies. And it's oh, just yeah. this fucking weirdo who wants to masturbate with an ice pack. Did he even have breathing issues to begin with is what I'm wondering now. Yeah. Was he just like wanting to expose himself to someone? It's a really complicated gambit for just a little indecent exposure. Yeah. Because the way they wrote it, it seemed like he waited until they were there and then started doing it. Ugh. Well, that wasn't that was refreshing. Yes, it uh, was. Florida. Like a nice cool ice pack right on your genitals. <laughs> well, I guess I could move on to my story now. All righty. Let's uh, do it up. <laughs> so we are heading to a town that proudly proclaims itself an exciting place to work and live. Welcome to Boring, Oregon. Boring? <laughs> yes. Nice. Uh, Boring is a community bedroom of Portland located about 12 miles southeast of the city in the foothills of the Cascade Mountains. Home to about 8,000 people, Boring covers 30 square miles in the northernmost end of the Willamette Valley at the base of Mount Hood in Clackamas County. Boring's landscape is pretty hilly, and there are several creeks that run through it into the Kalamakis River, including the Dome Creek, North Fork Deep Creek, Tickle Creek, which is my favorite creek name in a while. That is a pretty great creek name. <laughs> Boring has warm, dry summers. The average temperature in July is about 80 degrees. And cool, rainy winters, where the average temperature in December and January is 46 degrees Fahrenheit. Due to the higher elevations of the Cascade foothills, Boring is 30% more rainy than nearby Portland receiving an annual average of 55 inches of rain. It is very That's a lot there. of inches. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what she said. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. 
<laughs> of course. So let's chat about the town's name, shall we? First off, it isn't named Boring because it's a boring place to live. It's actually named after a person. Uh, an early settler in the area, in fact, a man named William Boring. I knew he- it. I knew it was a person's last name because I had that <laughs> professor in college. He was an Illinois-born Union soldier who was part of the battalion that distinguished itself in the fall of Vicksburg in 1863, during which 11 of the 32 members of the battalion were killed in battle. William Boring survived but sustained near-life-threatening injuries to his face and throat. These scars were so severe that he would wear a beard for the rest of his life to hide them. That's anything but boring. Exactly. Exactly what I thought. After the war, he married a lovely lady named Sarah, who either didn't mind the scars or was really into beards. The two of them headed out west in 1874 to settle a homestead near Portland, Oregon. Much of the original 160 acres that William and Sarah settled make up the town of Boring today, and the town officially decided to go by the name Boring after William donated land to build the first schoolhouse in the area in 1883. While agriculture has always been an important part of Boring, the community also thrived as a hub for the timber industry. Agriculture is quite boring. (laughs) Same thing, day in, day out. In 1903, Boring was officially platted as Boring Junction. After the construction of a railway by the Portland Railway Light and Power Company. This new rail line not only supported the transportation of timber products, but it also allowed for a closer connection to Portland, which spurred population growth. Uh, To give you an idea, before the rail line, it would take like six hours or so to get to Portland by horse or carriage. With the rail line, it took about an hour. Okay, that's a bit better. I mean, I'm sure there's lots of people wanting to go to a great town like Boring. (laughs) The timber industry continued in Boring through the 20th century. Today, Vanport International is the main lumber company operating out of Boring. Although their main industry is lumber export, they are co-located with a lumber mill that actively processes timber products, creating a steady economy and jobs in Boring. Boring is also home to a large number of dairy farms, plant nurseries, and berry farms, which make the most of the highly fertile soil in the Willamette Valley. Boring is the inspiration for the fictional town in the animated series Gravity Falls, and it was the setting for the canceled way too soon, in my opinion, teen dramedy Everything Sucks. I've never seen Everything Sucks. Uh, it was on Netflix in 2018. Think, yeah, that's the one with the kid that played Marshall on um, United States of Terra, right? Uh, I maybe. I know it was set in the, it was set in the 90s, so it's very nostalgia driven for me. Like the gotcha. episode where a girl goes to a Tori Amos concert, and I'm like, I went to that. Tour. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I'll have to check it out. As far as Gravity Falls goes, I know my niece and my niece or my nephew, one of them watched it, but I've heard it was pretty good too for a kid's show. As have I. So for a small town, Boring offers quite a bit to do. You can visit Leipold Farms, which features a five-acre corn maze 
hay rides, and a huge pumpkin patch each autumn. You can go for a hike on the Calzadero Trail, and you'll find lots of local huckleberries, blackberries, and wildflowers along this trail. You can take a bike ride from Portland to Boring on the Springwater Trail, which is a former rail line converted into a bike and walking path that winds through the Oregon countryside. If you're more into annual celebrations, I recommend visiting Boring in August, when you can join in on the annual Goth Float. Goth Float? Mm-hmm. It's in its eighth annual year, and during this float, the local goth community comes together to tube down four miles of the Kalamakis River. Black swimsuits and dark eye makeup are encouraged. Oh my god, I love it. Okay. <laughs> I'll go. So after your dark and refreshing floating adventure, you can stick around to celebrate Boring and Dull Day. Boring and Dull Day? Yep, well, they really played day. into that name, didn't they? They did. I like this town. <laughs> I, I totally want to check out Boring next time I'm in Oregon. On August 8th, residents of Boring, Oregon and Dull, Scotland celebrate their international bond as towns with really odd, unfortunate names. Oh, yes. <laughs> so these are the other ones in Scotland? Yep, in Scotland. Okay, I'm going to have to check that out then, too. So during Boring and Dull Day, you can find bagpipers and drummers in kilts, uh, barbershop quartets, tons of food trucks, and more. At the celebration in downtown Boring, as well as in downtown Dull. <laughs> I love it. These names. <laughs> While all of that sounds super duper fun, it's not the reason we're in Boring, Oregon today. No. We're heading to a museum at the intersection of Highway 26 and Highway 212. Welcome to the North American Bigfoot Center. What? Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> oh, yes. Here comes Bigfoot. Here comes Bigfoot. He's squatching at you. Opened in 2019 by Cliff Barrickman of Animal Planet's Finding Bigfoot and his wife, the center showcases Brackman's more than 25 years of Bigfoot research. There's an information center with evidence that visitors can touch and feel that includes footprint and hand casts. Native American artifacts, and there's even a life-size Bigfoot named Murphy. Murphy. Yes, it's really cool looking. Murphy was made by Animatronics Studio and captures all of the creature's supposed physical characteristics. Uh, the museum has expanded to include multiple exhibits that flow chronologically through different areas of the museum. One section will even be transformed in the future into a forest where guests can hear the sounds of Bigfoot and other wildlife native to their habitats. The gift shop for the North American Bigfoot Center is kind of mind-blowing. I've never seen so much Bigfoot merchandise in my entire life. And I'm happy to report that if you're in the market for some delightful Bigfoot paraphernalia, you can purchase it on their digital gift shop. Oh, sweet. I can get my own Bigfoot paraphernalia straight from Boring. Mm-hmm. Straight from Boring, Oregon. Why did Barrickman decide to establish his museum in Boring? Well, that's pretty simple. Oregon 
has the most Bigfoot sightings anywhere in the country. And the focal point of those sightings seems to be Kalamakas County. That's right. Kalamakas has the highest number of Bigfoot sightings in Oregon. So it's possible there's a Bigfoot living in Boring. Wow. Okay. So Kane is in Boring. Gotcha. <laughs> Can't forget our Mormon friends. <laughs> So let's chat a little bit about what people are seeing. Bigfoot, also referred to as Sasquatch, is pretty much like the iconic cryptid in cryptozoology, right? Definitely very North American. And I think Canada also has Bigfoot. Yes. Um, It's most often described as a large ape-like creature that inhabits the forest of North America. Witnesses usually describe it as large, muscular, A bipedal creature who's covered in dark hair that stands between six and nine feet tall. Uh, But the creature isn't just an overgrown ape. Uh, Witnesses say its movements and face seem more human-like than animal. The creature has gained the name Bigfoot due to the physical evidence found after encounters with witnesses, namely the large footprint tracks that show five distinct toes, And though the foot is shaped like a human's foot, the footprints are far too large. They're generally about 24 inches long, and they can be as wide as 8 inches. Interestingly, people in North America have been seeing creatures like this for thousands of years. Many indigenous cultures have tales of mysterious, hairy creatures living in the woods. The name Sasquatch comes from the Halakomelem indigenous language, and roughly translates to wild man or hairy man. Some of the oldest depictions of these creatures come from a site called Painted Rock on the Tool River Indian Reservation in Central California. This site is sacred for the Yukult's tribe, and it features a petrograph that dates to between 500 and 1,000 years ago, and clearly depicts a group of big feet, bigfoots, Bigfoots, I guess, we'll call it, and humans. I would go with Bigfoots. Big feet yeah. just sounds real weird. Yeah, it does, right? Okay. They're big foots. Big foots. <laughs> uh, the stories of Bigfoots continued as Europeans arrived in North America as well. 16th century Spanish explorers and Mexican settlers in California told tales of the Los Vigilantes Obscuros or the Dark Watchers, these large creatures that allegedly stalk their encampments at night. In the region that's now Mississippi, a French Jesuit priest who was living in Natchez in 1721 reported stories of hairy creatures in the forest known to scream loudly and steal livestock. Those vocalizations are a common occurrence in Bigfoot sightings. Sounds such as howls, screams, moans, grunts, whistles, and even a form of supposed language have been reported and allegedly recorded. That's just the sounds coming from Roshni Spiram. You're fine. (laughs) Their their sexin is too loud! (laughs) Other common behavior reported during Bigfoot encounters includes the throwing of large rocks, bent or uprooted trees, trees stacked in woven or crisscross patterns, and even deer carcasses or skeletons being suspended high up in trees. 
quite the decorating habits. Though many naturalists and scientists point out that these behaviors can be easily faked, and there have been numerous incidences of Bigfoot hoaxes during the 20th century, there are equally as many reports of strange encounters in the woods that have yet to be explained. For instance, in 1924, miners in Washington state reported being attacked by a group of large, hairy ape men who threw rocks onto their cabin roof from a nearby cliff after a miner shot one of the ape men with a rifle. Well, maybe he shouldn't have shot him. I know, kind of like rude. What were you expecting? Exactly. Just minding my own damn business, doing my Bigfoot stuff, living my best Bigfoot life. Just trying to hang my deer carcass over here and then you go and shoot me with your rifle. Right. In 1971, in uh, Folk, Arkansas, a family reported a large hair-covered creature startle a woman by reaching through a house window. Oh. Yeah. In 1974, the New York Times reported that Canadian prospector Albert Ostman claimed to have been kidnapped and held captive for six days by a group of Bigfoot in 1924 in British Columbia. Damn, okay. There are held captive, did you say? Yes. Okay, just making sure I heard that right. Yeah, held captive. Mm -hmm. Who's going to hold the Bigfoots accountable in this town? (laughs) They're just running everywhere with their big feet. Exactly. There are also... There are also a lot of regional versions or variations for these Bigfoot-like creatures. These include the skunk ape in Florida and other southern states. Grassman. Skunk ape? Yeah, you ever heard of the skunk ape? No. It's like the swamp dweller that's like a big hairy ape that lives in like the like the Everglades. Oh, weird. Okay. Yeah. Uh, there's the grassman in Ohio. Of course, the fook monster in Arkansas reaching into windows. One of my favorite versions, the wood booger in Virginia. The wood booger. It's the wood booger. <laughs> that is an unfortunate name. It almost is. as unfortunate as boring. Uh, if it makes up for it, there's also the Honey Island Swamp Monster in Louisiana. The Dewey Lake Monster in Michigan. And the Big Muddy Monster in Southern Illinois. And of course, you can forget the Old Men of the Mountain in West Virginia. That just sounds like Uncle Bob and his buddies. <laughs> The like they're making moonshine. Very hairy moonshine. <laughs> don't don't mind that bit of fur in the wet lining. It's fine. <laughs> the term wood ape is also used by some groups, especially indigenous Native American tribes. And it's a way to differentiate the perceived mythical connotations that surround the Bigfoot name. So just calling it a wood ape as in like it could be an undiscovered primate in North America. Um, You'll also hear similar animals that are found in Europe and Australia referred to as bushmen, treemen, or wildmen. There's a lot of skepticism around Bigfoot. I mean, how could there not be? Absolutely. It stems not only from the huge number of hoaxes that have popped up over the years, but it's also that it's very possible that people are conflating these common stories of wild men living in the forest from folklore with the misidentification of other animals. 
also very you know popular idea there um just when looking at pictures of whatever the the bigfoot's name is in um the tourist place that you're talking about whatever the hell's name is what is his name uh murphy murphy yes yeah even when just looking at pictures of murphy i found like some like photos and i say that making air quotes of bigfoot (laughs) and i'm very much just like that is a guy in a suit like there's no way in hell Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so that's interesting because that's actually one of the possible theories so um this is kind of an older theory uh but it's the idea that sometimes people are seeing not bigfoot but they're seeing perhaps file feral humans or hermits or possibly even shamans who are wearing large animal furs to either protect themselves from the elements or as it's part of their sacred beliefs. So that's one that source. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really compelling. Yeah. yeah. Uh, also, people could be attributing Bigfoot encounters to actually misunderstood bear encounters. Also a possibility, yeah. This is especially true when you look at the bear population in North America. So we have we have a lot of bears. We have black bears and we have grizzly bears. Uh, both of these species of bears are have the ability to stand and walk upright, especially if they have an injury to one of their front paws. And a black bear typically stands five to seven feet tall, while a grizzly bear is eight to nine feet tall, which is just about the same range as Bigfoot. As Bigfoot, yeah. yeah. And I also believe bears have bioluminescent eyes, like the eyes that reflect light. Oh, yep. Mm-hmm. And that has been something that's also been attributed in some of the Bigfoot encounters. That would be terrifying. Like you're in the woods in the yeah. middle of the night and all you see is like these standing nine feet tall, glowing eyes. <laughs> yep. But also, too, it explains like the uprooted trees and stuff, because like an angry bear yeah. will like shake trees and like things like that to like make itself seem more intimidating absolutely yeah i mean hey if salem can do all he does to make himself seem more intimidating then i think you know a bear could too since salem's just a little ball of love anyway even though he tries to act tough i try to be like look how wide i am daddy i'm big he's been fluffing up for no reason lately too and i don't know what it is he'll just like puff up his entire body i'm like it's just me i don't know what's going on (laughs) Um, Some other theories that that could explain away Bigfoot, especially down south, people have speculated that perhaps the skunk ape is actually an ape. It could be an escaped chimp, gorilla, or orangutan. Um, The reason I say the south is because it's warmer climates there, and that would be an environment that an escaped great ape could survive. Overall, though, most people think that witnesses could be experiencing a very common perception mechanism called pareidolia or the tendency to interpret an object pattern or even meaning when there is none. Really common examples are the perception of animals or faces or objects in cloud formations. Sometimes when you see faces in inanimate objects, um, I always look at like wood grain and I'm like, Oh, I see a face. That's creepy. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Or like (laughs) a rug with a weird pattern. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and then there's like a whole separate category called uh, lunar pareidolia, which is like seeing the man in the moon or the the rabbit in the moon kind of things. I've still never seen a damn face in that moon. 
ever. I tried. <laughs> I did. I did. I can. I can sort of see it. I just saw a giant toenail the one night, though. <laughs> Looked like a toenail that had been freshly clipped. Delicious. Um, in the case of Bigfoot, uh, skeptics think that perhaps witnesses are experiencing a pareidolia where they're seeing human-like faces or figures in the woods. Or also, too, when they're examining poor quality videos or photos of alleged Bigfoot encounters. This is so common that there is a term that refers to it. It's called a blotch squatch. Huh. Where that blotch looks like a Sasquatch to you. I can see this being a thing, like, not so much just, like, in the woods. Mm-hmm. Like, that part seems a little far-fetched. But, like, yeah, in pictures and videos, absolutely. Regardless of whether Bigfoot is real or not, I know one thing for certain. The creature is deeply embedded in the American psyche and a huge part of Oregon folklore. Definitely. So, Eden, thoughts on Bigfoot? So, I'm I'm very much one of those people when, like, you know, you can tell me, like, I believe in this, I believe in that. And I'll be like, okay, cool. And then when someone was like, I believe in Bigfoot, I'm like, seriously? Really? You believe in Bigfoot? <laughs> but, I mean, I'm also the type of person that even though I don't believe in Bigfoot, I also don't put anything past anything and will say it could be real. Because, I mean, we don't know everything. There could be Bigfoot out there. Who knows? There could also be, you know, like, Littlefoot. But in the land before time a little tiny um, dinosaur <laughs> a cute little dinosaur <laughs> um but yeah i mean like bigfoot has always intrigued me in the way that like why are we obsessed with bigfoot and a lot of what you said nicole makes sense on what people are seeing out there a lot of it makes a lot of sense and is things that i haven't even really thought of the one thing i thought of was what if it's just some ape that escaped from a zoo somewhere like you know <laughs> that was my main thought on bigfoot but i mean why is it so widespread like because so many different tribes had bigfoot and then you know people all over the world are still obsessed with bigfoot look at that stupid tv show finding bigfoot that's mm -hmm. been on for how many years and they still haven't freaking found him yet <laughs> i agree i think there's there's something about how humans experience the woods and animals in the woods and just the experience of being out there and that kind of makes our imagination run wild. Yeah. And think definitely. about these crazy, hairy things that are like us, but different. Yeah. It makes complete sense. Yeah. Um, and I mean, like I said before, who knows? There may be something out there. But until I see it, this is one that I'm going to be 100% skeptical of. I agree. But at least the Bigfoot legend has given us the cinematic masterpiece, Harry and the Hendersons. That's all I thought about your entire story. I'm surprised I pay attention at all because I was just like, Harry. Like some of John Lithgow's finest work. Exactly. Uh, I was very excited to do this story because I, one, love that movie. But also it's Bigfoot's, movie. Bigfoot's like one of those super fun cryptids. And I'm like, oh, finally, we're in the Pacific Northwest. I can do the Bigfoot story. Exactly. Yes, <laughs> you finally got your chance. Uh, my sources include Wikipedia, culturetrip.com, NorthAmericanBigfootCenter.com, OregonLive.com, Hood-Gord.com, Oregon Encyclopedia, and OregonWild.org. Well, thank you very much, Nicole, for your Bigfoot story. I appreciated it. 
Yeah, you're welcome. It was a pleasure to put it together. Awesome. Well, I guess that is all we have for this week, guys. I mean, it took us long enough, so... Because <laughs> uh, my story was obnoxiously large, and I do apologize for that. Um, but, you know, blame it on Sheila. All else fails, blame it on her. Um, if you want to get in contact with us, you can email us at show at gmail.com. You can also stop by any of the social medias. We are on Facebook and Instagram as Roadside Horror Show and on Twitter as Roadside Horror. You can also go to our website, which is roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. We'd like to thank E. Massey for our intro and outro music and Yox Rocks Design for our logo. Until next time, gang. Creep on, creeping on. Creepin on. on.